0: Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the Faithful and for the Faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce.
1: Hey, David. How are you doing today?
0: It's a it's a good day. You know, it's just another day where I'm not as quite as slick as uh, Dick Irvin in terms of my broadcast quality here. But I'm you know I'm hanging in there. I'm doing my best, man. What can I say? Mm-hmm. Dick Irvin, I I was always amazed by him, like just the fluidity of his speech and his. Uh, just ability to get things out and just keep talking in such a, a nice, eloquent manner. He was—he set the standard, I think, for uh, for broadcasters. And I once had the pleasure of interviewing Dick Irvin about his father and about I can uh, st- say, Dick Irvin Jr. You interviewed. Statistical information, because his father, with Irwin—I think it's Irwin Roth—Irvin Irwin Roth, Irwin Roth uh, came up with plus-minus uh NHL plus minus you know the the beginning the really the beginning of advanced stats mm-hmm. uh was Dick Irvin senior who was Montreal, mm-hmm. uh coach and gm in the 40s. Bruce uh today we're going to talk about what are we going to talk about we're going to talk about Jesper Yarvi, the latest with him out of Finland. We're going to talk about uh nhl.com's uh projection of the Oilers lines. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Canadian division, where the orders might finish, and uh, what ex- some experts think about that, and what you, Bruce McCurdy, thinks about that, and I, David Staples, think about that.
1: What I think about those experts. <laughs> exactly.
0: The experts. It's been a bad year for experts, Bruce. <laughs> yes. We're going to talk... It's been a
1: bad year for everyone.
0: It's been a bad year for everyone. Uh, we're going to talk about... The Oilers not the Oilers. The NHL's return to play, and the latest on that from Pierre LeBrun that I saw is they're talking now about mid-January, fifty-two to fifty-six game schedule, and of course all contingent on the players and the owners hammering out a financial agreement. And as far as I can understand, Bruce, the it seems like they have this fifty to fifty agreement on the on the revenue for the nhl and that's kind of not negotiable right that's the thing that's not negotiable the question is the orders. there was a kind of a side agreement from the 50 50 saying you'll you'll actually players you'll actually get works out to about 70 percent of their normal salaries this year the Mm -hmm. rest of it will be deferred and that's because they're going to have a lot less revenue this year Mm mm-hmm And uh, so, you you know, whatever the revenue was, the initial agreement was, you're going to get 70% of it. And now the owners are saying, actually, the revenue is going to be so damn low Mm -hmm. that we actually want you to take only about 50%. Is that right? 50% of your 50% of your wages and and defer the rest. And um, and this isn't going over too well with the players who want that 70% of their money now. They don't want to defer. The only thing I would say is the the, the players—it's up to them to figure this out. And if you—if they don't figure this out, obviously a pox on both houses. You know, just they could just you know bury the NHL under a mountain of of BS if they want to, because it's it's they're they're killing their league if they don't play this year. So if, if that's what they do, then to hell with them. You know, they'll be held to pay from fans. The, Brian Burke's talked about American teams going under. That's going to definitely happen. They're already losing a ton of interest. The, the interest in the NHL is that at all time Like, people have just tuned out. There, there's you know, there's a hardcore group of people like us still talking about it, but it's not on anyone's minds yeah. right now, and, and they're going to lose a lot of fans. So the, the whole deferral thing, to get back to that, is if they defer the money if they take the money all the money now 70% of the money if they take more money now that means down the road there's going to be salary cap implications the salary cap will be lower so essentially you're taking away from f- future payments to players to get the money now and this may sound like whatever but if i was if i was a 18 uh, year old superstar heading in the nhl i'd be a little bit worried about this because what this means is the salary cap if if they take all the money now that means they're going to have a bigger bill to pay later, and mm-hmm. that will come out of the pockets of players who are not in the NHL right now. So this is pitting right. current NHL players against future NHL players who do not have a vote.
1: Yeah, guess, which have yeah. guess which ones have the votes.
0: Guess which ones have the votes. So, uh, and I can see people wanting money now rather than money in the future. Money now is worth more than money in the future, and um, probably... So why why wouldn't with inflation you know if inflation goes up we'll see see about that so I can see why the players want the money now I can see why the owners don't want to pay the money now and I don't give a hoot about any of it if you can't figure it out to hell with you so that's my take what's yours
1: yeah well the players are upset and I'd say understandably so in that they uh, negotiated this agreement this memorandum of understanding on and the new CBA five months ago in July, and at that point, they agreed to this uh, 20% plus 10%. It amounts to a they 28% um, clawback of the player's salaries. Now, my understanding, which is far from perfect, though, let's start there, but my understanding is that the uh, there was no pro rata element to it, that if they played a shorter season, the players would get a, a, a proportionally lower amount of their salary. So if they play a 56-game season, well, that's 70% of the season. So if they get 70% of their pay, uh, that's, you know, it's a it's a clawback from their salaries. But, I mean, from the revenue side of things, I mean, the revenues are going to go in the tank. There's no two ways about it. Fans or many fans for much or most, if not all, of the season. Uh, I would make the case I'm not entirely convinced the owners bargained in good faith, frankly, in the summer when they, because they really wanted to get back and play the playoff games, which satisfied some of their TV commitments and and uh, and ensured some re- revenues would come in. Um, but anybody who couldn't see the writing on the wall that many of the health experts were talking about the second wave being worse than the first and how uh, uh, this fall and winter could be could be a tough one and so on and And yet there wasn't many safeguards or uh, guardrails. I think it's a common uh, uh, vernacular these days. Uh, Against that, now they're trying to sort of take a step back and review it. And and it does need to be done, but it smacks of of just poorly prepared or negotiated initial position, frankly. Uh, And the players are in a, uh, you know, they're in a tough spot. The owners are in a tough spot, but it's in both of their interests. They gotta work it out. I mean, if they were to if they were to impose a work stoppage, on top of uh, of you know the natural work stoppage that the pandemic has applied, uh, it, it would be a death blow. I just don't understand how you know how the hockey would would survive anywhere close to its current form. And Brian Burke was saying that you know. Don't worry about Canada, Canada will bounce back and be ready to consume hockey whenever in whatever form. But this big uh, continental market that they've developed is, uh, you know, I mean, it's on shaky ground already. Some of these cities they play in where they, you know, they don't, to me, the boundaries where ice forms naturally, that's hockey country and where it doesn't, you know, it's sort of, uh, uh, you know, it's artificial ice and in a way it's an artificial game there. Those markets are in big trouble I mean, they've always been you know difficult cells, but they're they're in big trouble now. So they have to work it out. And as you say, a lot of it's just um, a battle, internal battle within the players. Uh, where how do they split their fifty percent among themselves? And in this case, it has the long term implications over the six or seven years of the CBA before the accounts get settled. Well, that's an awful long time. I mean, that's more than a full career for a seller. So the ones who are around now, obviously, they want to put off as much of that as they can. But uh, uh, they're they're in a difficult spot. I'm I'm just going to quote a little bit from a column I read on Boston Hockey Now uh, by Jimmy Murphy, I think the guy's name is. And Uh, He he winds up that says uh, uh, one NHL player told him Friday morning, the players are trying to treat this like they do when an opponent takes a run at them on the ice, trying to goad them into a retaliatory penalty. Players know the owners are taking advantage of them in the pandemic right now, but they know they can't afford to miss an entire season. And this is a quote from the agent. Take a number and get them when the time is right. The players know they've been cornered again. And we'll have to accelerate that money they owe and maybe even pay more when all is said and done. Because let's face it, this 50 50 revenue share is bullshit. It's working more in the owner's favor. That being said, the feeling I get talking to my guys and other agents is that now is not the time to finally take that stand. Everyone involved needs a season, and the players want to give the fans a season with everything that's going on in this world.
0: I don't care. I don't know what the players are thinking and like whatever hockey analogy they're using. It doesn't matter to me. Bruce, it. it Burke has also said the owners have the right to cancel the season illegal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. and and whether they do or not, they could cancel yeah. the season, right? Like and yeah. then then it'll go to the courts and they'll work it out over in years, right. But the owners can still <sighs> cancel the season right now, whether they're right or wrong, it seems to yeah. me they can do that. So yes. this is a big stick. and
1: yes. um it's called a force majeure is that's the legal right, term.
0: and and you can. I, I would say that what you're saying has some sense. Like right? they mm-hmm. certainly did have a deal, and it seemed like the players yeah. had some certainty. Yeah. At the same time, was it bad faith um, to not? Did they think that? Did, did did people know where COVID would be? I would say there was a lot of uncertainty. That's for darn sure. We we had those huge projections. Remember initially huge projections of spread and deaths initial from from Oxford and London that turned out to be incorrect. That was the you know some of the smartest people in the world trying to figure out what's going to happen to COVID, and they were completely and utterly wrong. So to to know what was going to happen with COVID this fall, a uh, little bit of a little bit iffy to know that. So maybe the owners were incorrect to make a deal based on the fact that they didn't know, and maybe they they did that to get the players into the playoffs. So yeah. so that's that's a fair comment. That's definitely a fair comment. Um, on the other hand. Uh, no one, no one did know where COVID was going to oh. go. We're okay. in this terrible situation, and it just strikes me the players are in this situation where there's a little bit of denying of reality. There's mm-hmm. this huge hit to their industry. Their industry isn't what it oh, was. Wow. It's it's the revenues. If you're going to play without fans in the stands, your revenues. Like some right. people have said they're going to be hardly cut at all. But my understanding was like in the past, the revenues were 80%. And now they're, I think, closer to 50%. The gate revenues are about 50% mm-hmm. of the revenues, if I'm not mistaken. You're losing that. That's half the money. And mm-hmm. and it's at least half the money because then there's other things that are probably going to go by the wayside it's in terms of sales and advertising, of uh, sales of paraphernalia and advertising from from. Um, inside the building and other things like that. I I don't really know, but the the fundamental economics of the industry have been changed and you're just going to have, it's, it's obviously hugely painful for anyone, everyone who has to take a salary cut. Lots of people are doing that. And this, and lots of people are out of work Mm -hmm. and um, fearing losing work. So again, my, the bottom line is, just deal with it, figure it out. And if you can get something going, make it happen. You're going to have a hard enough time getting something going with COVID around as the, as the leagues in Finland and Sweden and Switzerland are seeing,
1: you're going to
0: have a hard enough time just running this thing and making it happen. And other people can't even play hockey. We'd love to get out there. Like many people would love to get out there and play hockey. If you can go out, go out there and play hockey, get out there and play hockey. And if whatever revenue you have, you have something actually that's pretty special. I think in the end this 50/50 agreement, it it was hard to get to. It took a lot of pain and suffering, but I think it is the the basis for a healthy NHL to go forward. If they can just hold on to that 50/50, try to be fair to everybody here, and, and this goes for the owners as well. Try to you know try to be fair to the players, players try to be fair to you, your own families and your own situation, and also future players. Think about them. Mm-hmm. And get on with it
1: well the players splitting their own share of the pot I mean we used to at least see this on an annual basis when they voted on this escalator clause on the salary cap and basically that they were splitting their share of the pot but it basically again as I understand it it boiled down to uh, that group of players that had guaranteed future contracts not wanting the escalator and that group of players that didn't have contracts in the future that are going to be hitting the open market, and wanting the escalator for the teams to have more salary caps so they could sign more guys. And of course, the higher the salary cap, the more the escrow. And I'm not fully sure that the the majority of players understand escrow to its to its full meaning, but uh, that that's another issue. But they would always have this split vote because there would be competing interests of how they share their part of the pie. Really, in a sense, the owners have nothing to do with that part of the argument. On the flip side, the owners get the 50% of hockey-related revenue, or at least they're supposed to in the long run. But they also have this other factor of franchise values you know the Forbes values of, of, of the teams going up and up and up and up and up that's totally unrelated to the hockey related revenue that these guys you know I mean Daryl Cates what's he seen the value of the Oilers double or more in the time that he's had the team and they don't want to kill the goose that laid that golden egg and and so to have a full-on work stoppage that would be devastating to the industry so I really think there's you know there's strong pressure on both sides as distasteful as it is they got to work something out
0: you're right, Bruce, and that's the stick. If there's any kind of stick that the players have, it would be nope. that. But I, I think for the owners, there's been con- consistent rumors of about six owners wanting just to cancel the season because they're going to lose more money by playing the season than, than by not having it is the, the rumor. Who knows? Like, in it's kind of in a time of war, don't believe anything, right? Like right. When, when, when two sides are squabbling over money, mm-hmm. uh, be careful about that. But, um, yeah, I, I think that is something that the players have that the owners would be worried about their franchise values decreasing. But I think that's overridden by probably a lot of these owners, are, uh, I'm guessing, are in terrible financial trouble right now. Just like, you know, a certain percentage of the population, depending on mm-hmm. what, what, what your business is. Mm-hmm. So they'd be happy just to to ditch the season, some of them, and, and not lose that money because they can't afford it. They can't afford that money. Like they literally... Well, where are they gonna get it they're asking themselves they, ca- they right. can't make the payrolls of their current businesses probably are struggling to do so so
1: <laughs>
0: anyway we'll see what happens I I I mid-january I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with with um, I'm going to go with mid-January. What about you, Bruce? What's your prediction for the start of the yeah, year?
1: Yeah, I'll go for February 1st and 48 games as a as a fallback of you know, lots of precedent. We've had two 48-game seasons in our, yeah. in our past, so that's yeah. kind of what I've been thinking all along. And I think this is one mistake that uh, that was made in the initial negotiations. they were steadfast saying, well, next year we're going to start late, but we're going to get the full 82 games in. And this is why they didn't have yeah. any pro recreation in their In their uh, negotiation, like, it it was never in the cards that they were going to play 82 games plus the full playoffs in 2021. It just was never going to happen.
0: I agree, Bruce. It always seemed like, what are you guys talking about? Like, (sighs) it just struck me like you could easily, at the time, I was 99% sure they were going to have the playoffs. Because they thought, Mm -hmm. okay, you can get together these teams for a tournament. But at at the same time, I was always thinking next year, it always seemed Mm -hmm. really iffy to me. Like, trying to travel around and play all these games, like, it just didn't, I could never really figure out how that's going to work in a time of COVID. And, and again, right. the challenges that we're seeing in the European leagues are immense. I think it can be done. I think people are getting smart about the virus. So, You know, it is, obviously, there's heavy spread. But I, I if people take real precautions, and, you know, there's a lot of, lot riding on a for them, including their paycheck, right? Like in the future of their business, I think there does seem to be a motivation to get it right. And I think the NHL probably could pull off a season. Um, you know, some teams will miss some games. You know, there'll be, you know, they'll miss five games will be canceled in a row for some teams. And that, that's what we're seeing in Europe, right? But I think they're going to be able to pull it off, especially uh, with the vaccine coming in, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. The Canadian division, is going to be really challenged because covid is going to be much more you know we, we might the, the latest word from um Ottawa I talked to Don Davies who's an MP who's on the health committee for the NDP he was questioning officials last week the latest word is 6 million doses of the vaccine by the end of March so that means 3 million Canadians will be vaccinated but those are all going to be not I would presume not NHL players. I mean, we'll see, we'll see about Essential that. Essential workers, man. There'll be a, there'll be doctors and nurses and there'll be people elderly people who who get hammered by this disease. There'll be the people in extended care homes like my parents. You know, yeah. I can't wait for them to get vaccinated so they can actually see each other again. So, NHL players are mm, we'll see if they get early vaccination or not. Like there might be private measures that that can be taken for some people who are traveling a lot like if you're traveling a lot maybe there they'll they'll be some people who get vaccinated i don't know i'm not going to get into who should get it and who shouldn't get it right it looks like canada could be could have real trouble getting vaccinated but i still think they'll probably be able to to hold the season if they're super careful
1: all we know is that if wherever the front of the line is calgary flames will be in front of that (laughs) <laughs> and Matthew Kachuk at the very front of that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, I mean, Mark this is where, where I mean the headline of the this article was unless COVID makes it impossible, there will be a season. And that, you know, that possibility, I mean, we're talking about daily records for infections, hospitalizations and deaths, and it's just ramping up and up and up at just a completely right. scary rate. So the whole shebang could be compromised uh by, you know, what develops there. And it's completely out of Gary Bettman's hands or anyone's. So, you know, some of of the stuff is just, you know, bigger picture just dominating uh, what the individual actors are able to do.
0: In the United States, uh, and who knows what's going to happen, but the the people who are heading up Operation Warp Speed say a million, or excuse me, a hundred million vaccinations by the end of March in the United States. If they can achieve that, they can easily, I think, proceed with an NHL season. That's going to solve a lot of their problems really, really fast. So, uh, good luck to it's that. man. March.
1: That's not middle of January. And yeah. meantime, you have the mayor of LA saying shut it all down. So,
0: there is a know, lot of uncertainty. Be, yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty, and some really hopeful news. Like I, mm-hmm. I just, you know, if you worked on that vaccine and you're listening to this podcast, well, good work. Good work. Yeah righty, Bruce. Let's talk about the Canadian division and whether or not. Uh, let's not talk anymore about whether or not they can proceed. We, right. hash, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. We have our fingers crossed. But the experts say if they do proceed, but what, what do the experts say? The Oilers won't even make the playoffs. Is that the consensus? Oh, or? No, no,
1: not not quite. This is it's Canadian division. It's been a lifelong dream of mine, and I wrote about it on a Hockey Day in Canada on February. And it was like I was George Orr in Ursula Le Guin's La- *The Lathe of Heaven*, where the dream became a reality, no matter, and if, but in an unexpected way. And it's become a reality in a most unexpected and unwelcome way that the uh, the border is closed and, and remains closed for the foreseeable future. That there's enough of a critical mass in Canada. Thankfully, it's not like baseball or basketball where we got one team and they're forced out of the country to to participate. We got seven teams and basically a quarter of the league and then a four-division league, there's enough for uh, just the Canadian teams to make a viable uh, division of their own. Uh, So, of course, something we've never seen. I mean, the good news is that there's built-in rivalries everywhere, right? Right. Oilers fans, Flames fans, Canucks fans. They not only hate each other, they hate the Leafs and they hate the Habs. Hey, this is and a
0: dream come true. This is a dream come true, Bruce.
1: We've never played a four-point game 4 point game against the Leafs ever. And yet, uh, the hatred is real. And, you know... And, oh, that'll and, be good, and, won't and it? And the rivalry... Let's, let's say the rivalry is intense and the games will be intense and there will be uh, lots of fun there. Anyways... Uh, uh, there was a poll by Pierre Lebrun, uh, and he talked just to people stateside. So nobody was skinning the game here in Canada, but he talked to executives, front office people, coaches, scouts, so knowledgeable hockey people and not necessarily large market people and not necessarily, you know, analysts and so on, but they just got a uh, – took a straw poll. How will the Canadian teams finish? One to seven. And he got 15 responses. And of those 15, all 15 of them picked Ottawa last. And yeah. otherwise, there was uh, there was not a consensus, but there was a broader consensus than I would have guessed. Like I would never have thought any one team would get the majority of votes for first place. But in fact, Toronto Maple Leafs got nine of the 15 votes. Uh, Calgary Flames got four. Montreal Canadiens of all teams got two and all the others, none, including the Edmonton Oilers. Not one single person the 15 thought that Edmonton had the best chance to win uh, first place in the Canadian division. And I think... Or Vancouver. Vancouver, yeah. It's a, or it's Winnipeg. A ca- it's a case of being burned uh, uh, too often maybe by the orders of the past. But you know what, I, I, I uh, just looked at last year's standings of the seven Canadian teams. Granted that they weren't all playing each other all season, they had different schedule strengths and stuff, so it's not a perfect thing. And of course, last year isn't next year. But Edmonton Oilers first best record in the Canadian t- among all the Canadian teams, most wins, most regulation wins, most points, best points percentage. And then I further broke it down to what happened from just from the 2020 portion of the schedule. How did they do in the second half of the season when they were building towards? the playoffs and the Oilers were number one with a bullet uh, they were well ahead of the other Canadian teams uh, they really expanded their goals for total they reduced their goals against uh, they had a you know a huge goal differential in their favor over 0.6 goals per game which is you know for goal differential that's like plus 50 on on a 82 game season and they they were coming on And, of course, as we know as Oilers fans, New Year's was exactly the time that the team underwent some fundamental changes that were almost entirely for the better. When Dave Tippett moved, split up Leon Drysaddle and Connor McDavid, put them on two separate lines, moved Drysaddle in the middle, moved Nugent Hopkins to the wing, brought in Yamamoto from the minors, put him on the other wing. All of these moves were very beneficial to the Oilers, and they went on a hot run, and they stayed on that hot run. They also got better goaltending after uh, New Year's. Mike Smith was very good in 2021. If you can somehow put August 1st out of your memory, for most of 2021, Mike Smith had uh, had good results. Uh, the team, for all that there's knocks about the goaltending, and and LeBrun mentioned goaltending and lack of organizational depth as the reasons he thought that these people didn't like Edmonton more than than they did. Well. The Oilers. I mean, it's not just goaltending, obviously, team defense. But the Oilers had the second-best goals against of all of those seven Canadian teams. Only Winnipeg Jets and their Vezina Trophy-winning netminder Connor Hellebuyck had a better defensive record than did the Oilers. So, for all of it, it's seen as their, you know, their their Achilles' heel, well, show me where it is in those numbers. I, I you know, I don't see it. Like their their defensive record. I mean, you give the the team a little bit of credit, you give the coaching some credit, you certainly give the penalty kill a lot of credit, but the goaltenders are part of that. And they, uh, you know, they're not getting crushed by this so-called Achilles heel unless you focus strictly on that four games in August. And and that was, you know, a duck out of water, was, uh, you know, the, the series as a whole. And as I quoted in the post, your, your uh, stipulation all... June and July, when we were talking about that series, and you said if they played the series 10 times, the Oilers would win it seven times. And and unfortunate fact is they played it once, and the 30% team came through and won that one series, and they had a few bounces go in their favour for that to happen, but it happened. So the recency bias is that the Oilers couldn't get it done.
0: Yeah, and they, they, of course Tippett made a, 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 an historic coaching error, breaking up the best line in the NHL. And I'm not going to forget that. I know it's often not even mentioned anymore as a a reason why the Oilers lost in the playoffs. You know, in the conventional narrative on what went wrong. But, man, Bruce. Anyway, uh, yeah, I don't... If if we're completely honest, right? Like, uh, I'll take off my my Oilers goggles for a second. My Oilers fan goggles for a second. And and I'd have to admit that it's really close. But I I think, you know, if I had to bet real money... I think there's two teams to me, Toronto and Edmonton, mm-hmm. who have just a higher tier of talent. And then it's so how do you surround that talent? And I think uh, Ken Holland has done a fabulous job of bringing in new players. I mean, I, essentially the Oilers' uh, fourth line last year, Kara, Jason, and Neil. If if I was making the lineup, they would be the fifth line. That would those guys wouldn't be. They, so they have a whole other layer of players brought in, um, who can help them win this year as compared to last year. You know I mean, let's just let's just real quickly go down the lineup and let's who's on the team, who's going to be playing on the team right this coming year that wasn't really that wasn't on the team in in October last year. Huh. Dominic Cahoon wasn't on the team. Mm-hmm. Kyler Yamamoto wasn't on the team. Yasapulio Yarvi wasn't on the team. Kyle Turris wasn't on the team, Tyler Ennis wasn't on the team. Those are those are five guys.
1: Caleb, Caleb Jones wasn't on the team.
0: Those are five forward. Caleb Jones yeah. wasn't on the team. Tyson Berry wasn't on the team. Um so mm. and they've lost Oscar Klefbom. So right. so so the big question mark to me is how big a drop is uh, Caleb Jones to Klefbom and how big a, is that made up for? Uh, the improvement of Tyson Berry over uh, Matt Benning. So I, I actually think Tyson Benning over Matt Benning is, is pretty huge. And the Caleb Jones, Oscar Clefbaum thing, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to say it's surprisingly going to be not as big an issue as some people might think. I think Caleb Jones is, is overripe and ready to step in and hang in there in a top four all in the NHL. And that's a big statement. And if he doesn't, they still have Chris Russell on the left side, and he'll get you through. They have Lenstrom they can go to. They have Lagasin. So it's not exactly like they have no options on the left side. Their goaltending, Bruce, is to me more settled this year than it was last year. Last year, Koskinen t- was a total question mark whether he could be a number one goalie in the NHL. Well, he was a number one goalie in the NHL last year. He had a weak playoffs. But he he had a 196 916 save percentage. Like he was in the top half of starters in the NHL. Just at the top half. He was like 15, 16, 17, right in that middle range. So they the others have a starting goalie that uh, for who played that way for a whole year. Can he keep it up? Well he's I don't see why not. He he got better year to year. Um, unless he gets hurt, <coughs> he should be okay. So I I I due respect to the experts. That kind of unanimity, like Toronto, Toronto's a good team, but they don't have two MVPs uh, at centre. Uh, Montreal, who are their two top centres? Who are they counting on? Their te- they're two counting young on-
1: kids, Suzuki and Kanyami
0: and you're gonna have them go up against. Listen, Leon Drysaddle and Connor McDavid. There's something fundamentally changed this year, Bruce. <laughs> no kidding. Dreissel and McDavid are playing on their own lines, mm-hmm. and they're actually both gonna have good wingers. Mm-hmm. They're actually both gonna have be surrounded by good wingers. This mm-hmm. is a this that transformed the team last they're January. They're That's the big they're... change. <laughs> One of these years, Bruce, the Oilers are gonna go on a run where they mm-hmm. start the year and they're going to get like 13 wins and two or three losses. And I'm not saying that's this year, but it's not a bad bet that it could be this year. The Otters could come charging out, take command and be be the best team. Is that going to happen? You know, I'd say there's a 1 in 3 chance that's going to happen. But there is a there is a what is there in terms of the Orioles winning this thing? Mm-hmm. I'd say I'd say it's 40% they're going to win well, it's
1: this, not this. zero. That's that's the thing that shocked me, and it kind of prompted me to write this this post. I mean, Toronto, fourteen out of the fifteen had them in the top three, whereas Edmonton, it was like three for second, four for third, three for fourth, three for fifth, two for sixth, and none at either first or seventh. And they're you know just in the middle of the pack. And as a weighted average, uh, Oilers fourth. So in the playoffs, of so, you know, assuming a fourteen playoff because they're talking about having the first two rounds of the playoffs, also strictly in Canada, so that would just mean four teams in. So, And it's going to be a brawl, because really, I mean, there, there's, there's no superpower team in there, but there, there's, other than Ottawa, and I think Ottawa is, uh, is uh, closer than they appear, uh, the other teams, you know, there's going to be a lot of highly competitive games, let's put it that way. And, you know, the teams shown on the outside looking in, Vancouver and Winnipeg, no doubt their fans are saying, hey, we're better than that. And so I'm just saying, we're better than that. You know, I've got, and you mentioned it, I mean, lack of organizational depth. I mean, if even if you can make that case, well, let's look at the top of the lineup. And who? which other team in the seven or the 30 other teams in the league have two top-end players of the caliber of McDavid and Dreisaitl. Well, the scoring race tells me there's none other teams that have that. And there's, you know, there's more to hockey than scoring, obviously, but it was Edmonton's uh, surge in scoring that really uh, pushed their performance in the second half last season. I don't see why that's going to slow down. You know,
0: Edmonton, compared to a lot of the American teams, what the Oilers lack compared to a lot of teams is that true number one D-man, or the, like that really elite player. How many of the Canadian teams have a true number one D-man? I'd say v- Quinn Hughes in Vancouver yep. is is that yep. guy.
1: He's Depending that guy.
0: Up. Mark Giordano, was that obviously guy. obviously was that guy. I think his play took a little bit of a hit last year. Mm-hmm. He's 37 now. Mm-hmm. Toronto's Montreal's top guy. Top two to guys are Shea Weber, uh, who is now 35, and Jeff Petrie, who's 32. Jeff Petrie's never been a true number one guy. He's comparable to a Darnell Nurse. So um, they don't, don't really. an Ottawa doesn't have that player. Maybe Thomas Chabot will 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 grow into that. And Morgan Riley's kind of in. Morgan Riley's a very good hockey player. Uh, when Connor McDavid isn't deking him, and uh, burned and uh
1: he got burned
0: he got burned and um but toronto's depth here's their defensive depth jake muzzin who's 31 now and um he's a good player he's a Mm -hmm. top four nhld man Mm -hmm. tj brody he's 30 and he's probably a top four nhld man Mm -hmm. um justin hall Zach Bogosian, Rasmus Sandy, Travis Dermott, Miko Leighton. You know, the, their bottom of their defensive roster is very similar to the Oilers, and their top isn't that dissimilar. Um, you know, Morgan Riley's a, the best defenseman probably of the whole group. Is that a fair comment? Yeah. Oilers, you know, you'd probably trade him for any Oilers defenseman. Is that is that fair?
1: Yeah, probably. Look hard, for sure.
0: Yeah, would you trade him for Darnell Nurse? Some people might not, right? You know, some people might not. Uh, But I think most would. But there's very, the Leafs aren't that stacked on defense. To me, it comes down to when when the, who's going to be unlucky to have some of their top four demon get hurt? How many teams are going to be unlucky to have their top four demon get hurt? And when that happens, who do they have to fill in? How many guys can you plug in who can still get the job done? and that's what the season's going to come down to. Unless there's a goalie injury, which they that's a little bit more rare, but but can happen as well. But if the Oilers stay healthy, if their top demons stay healthy. I and I like the Oilers' ability to withstand a little bit more injury on the blue line than than in the past Bruce. I mean they they have players like Lagesson, Lenstrom, Bouchard in the 7D man role and and they have Russell and arguably Tyson Berry as their third pairing. Both guys capable of moving up into the top four. I mean, Barry may start with Darnell Nurse. We'll see what we have. Maybe we'll have Ethan Bear and uh, Caleb Jones, which would be kind of a, the old Bakersfield connection getting together. And I, I'd like twins. to see those guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Bruce, let's go to – this is related. Uh, mm-hmm. This is the NHL.com projected the Oilers' lines. And okay. um, I don't know where they got the information from. But there, there is a. They got one thing right. They got the dynamite line together: Ryan Nugent-Hopkins, Leon Drysuttel, and Kyler Yamamoto. And it will be very interesting to see what Tippett does after the heat. you know, fair amount of heat actually. He, mm-hmm. he took. I'm sure. I'm sure he heard about it about that decision and whether he will keep that line together or not. Now the the NHL.com lines. Bruce, for some reason, didn't even have Dominic Cahoon on their list as one of the, on any of the top four lines, they didn't have Dominic Cahoon. Dominic Cahoon, <laughs> at even strength, he scored 2.2 points per game for the last two years and even higher in the last year. Just a little bit below Taylor Hall for even strength scoring the last two years and ahead of Ryan Nugent Hopkins. He will be in the Oilers' starting lineup. He's a very good hockey player. On the, on their... Uh, the NHL.com has James Neal, Connor McDavid, and Zach Cassian projected on the top line. And when you look at um, who had success with Connor McDavid last year, James Neal is at, at the absolute bottom of the list, even strength. They had a goals for a percentage of like forty percent uh, with James Neal and Connor McDavid, which is which is which is terrible. You, you know, you can't have a when Connor McDavid's on the ice. Your goals for percentage has to be 55, 60%. That's what you'd expect at even mm-hmm. strength. And if you're, there was some pretty clear evidence that the McDavid-Neal combo didn't work. 11 goals for, 16 goals against when they were on the ice at even strength. That didn't work. And I don't think we're going to see it. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe that's what Tippett has in mind, but... When you have Dominic Cahoon, and Dominic Cahoon, like we've talked in the past about how difficult it is to play with Connor McDavid, at least I have, it's one of my constant drums that I beat, because he, he needs the puck, you want him to have the puck, but then there's this weird thing where when the other guy on the line has the puck, he's got to be able to make a really good play with the puck, he's got to be this highly skilled player as well. Usually when you have a highly skilled player, he he wants to carry the puck and do something with it, like Nugent Hopkins. I think Nugent Hopkins is a bit of a waste when he's with McDavid, because Really, you want the guys with the McDavid to, to play off of him constantly? It's a really hard thing to do, but I think Dominic Cahoon could do that. Um, he doesn't need the puck; he's good with the puck. And I think the other guy, Zach Cassian, showed that he can get by. Zach Cassian's um, goals for percentage with McDavid was 52%, uh, 54 goals for and 42 against. And that was, they were together through that horrible, horrible, ghastly, wretched period in December where McDavid and Dreisaitl couldn't get it together covering the defensive slot. And there was just tons and tons of the worst, most dangerous, graded chances against the order. So I, I think Cassian, Cahoon, and McDavid would be my top line. So, Bruce, what did you, what did you think of the Neil suggestion?
1: Well, that I think it's sort of. Um boilerplate, frankly, you know, you go back and say, well, I got that hole on top six and and I've got this guy that's got a long history of scoring goals and uh, uh, he scored 19 last year and he wasn't 100% for a chunk of the year. So let's slot him in there. I mean, uh, to me, Neil, I think the last two years has shown that the top six is is maybe a little bit uh, I won't say above his pay grade, but a little beyond his his capacity, and I'm not saying he couldn't keep it for short times. The same way you, you know, move a defenseman into the top four, he's a guy you can certainly put up there for, for a, a part of a game or you know a week or whatever. I just don't see him maintaining long term. Uh, the list they have here, I mean, they do have the dynamite line together. They do have the uh, the third line that we've been talking about quite a bit: tourists between Ennis and Puljuari, listed together. Yeah, uh, not shown here at all. Are three European guys, Cahoon, Haas, and Nigard who are all, uh, you know, on the cusp certainly of the roster. But I mean, you can make a case for a couple of them being on the fifth line. I mean, Haas versus Kara 4 C. Some prefer Haas. Kara Kara yeah. had the, you know, the special teams aspect. And I think that was really the difference maker last spring, that line that you didn't particularly like at even strength. And I didn't like my even strength of of, uh, Kara, Neil and Chase on. But all of them were monsters on on their various special team roles last year. So that, you know, that's still going to be a factor. I like that line
0: at even strength, actually. In the playoffs, they were a good line. I don't I don't mind that line at even strength.
1: Go ahead. Sorry, I think Cahoon is sort of the favorite to be in the top six, whether it's with Leon or with Connor. You know, I mean, I'm sure you'll get a chance to see how he fits with both. Uh, But he was, uh, to me, he was an inspired addition in the sense that uh, when you have two star centers and one star left winger, uh, you know, you're going to have one One of the centers is maybe going to have his nose out of joint a little bit. No matter, you know, how much he sucks it up and takes it for the team, you know, he's going to say, well, you know, I mean, I'm sure Connor's saying, well, look, Leon got the, those two great wingers. I could kill him on the line like that, too. Well, with a guy like Cahoon, you can put him with Dreisaitl, and Dreisaitl is, is I don't think he's going to be be um, unhappy that Nuge is on a different line because he knows this guy. They played together for years. In fact, they played full years together as kids, and but and they've been regulars on the German national team for years. He can score. He can play. You know, he's he's not just a, a guy from Germany. He's a, you know, a guy who can play the game, put the puck in the net. And so, ultimately, that's the combination I expect to see. But uh, we'll see. Time will tell.
0: It's true. And, and, you know, we've heard little rumors about, you know, the – it, that it was Drysidle who was driving the I want to play with Connor McDavid thing, that he was unhappy when he was not. I, someone said that on Orders Now, one of the ends. I think it might have been John Shannon or someone like her spec. I can't remember, but someone okay. let that slip that it was actually Drysidle. Mm-hmm. And that we've also heard that Dreisaitl, it's Drysidle, who he cares about playing with most is Yamamoto. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, really? we might see, you know, if it's Cahoon, Drysidle, and Yamamoto, that will also be a pretty dynamite line. I have a feeling, so that will, that will like this, you know, my criticism, my ongoing uh, ranting about that might be assuaged by uh, a line that works. That's all I need to see is a line that works. I'm not wedded to Nugent Hopkins on that line. Nuge with McDavid can work. Nuge, McDavid and Cassian could work. And um, obviously you have two really fantastic players like that, but I think actually Cahoon is a better fit than, than Nugent Hopkins. Uh, just they're two different skill sets. I think mm-hmm. uh, uh, Cahoon just strikes me as uh, a very confident player with the puck, and so when he, he you have to have confidence playing with McDavid too, because there's that need to give up the puck, but there is a need right. to make a play now and then when you have it. And I, I just I just think that could work. I think he's a really, really smart player, and I just love the drive. Honestly, I love the dynamite line so much. They had such chemistry. I just, we've got to see it, man. We've got to see. we
1: mm-hmm.
0: got to give, can never get enough of the dynamite line.
1: Well, Leon so, Dreissel, for all the, all the complaining about his plus minus, from January 1st to the end of the season, he was plus 13. There you go. Um, and, that included. And, and
0: playing center. And playing, playing center,
1: center. Playing center. Drive, he, he, driving
0: he's, his own line.
1: hmm Yeah.
0: So Bruce, you got those two lines, and then yeah. you have, you know, what if things go bad? Let's say things go bad on those. Guess who you can plug in? Guess who you can give a chance to? Tyler Ennis, mm-hmm. who has who had 1.8 points per game per 60 over the last two years, which is the same as Tyler Tofoli, the big Montreal signing, which is ahead of Josh Anderson, the other big Montreal signing. So, and then you have Yarvi who's chomping at the bit. So there's all suddenly from having like really limited options. And there's also James Neal and Josh Archibald and Alex Chase who 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 the coach likes to plug in there at various times. And I wouldn't go with any of those guys. And there's Joachim Nygaard, who actually mm-hmm. when 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 Nigard was on the ice with McDavid last year, they scored six goals and allowed two against. So um there's there's all kinds of options. I, I the Oilers' forward depth suddenly has gone from like a huge negative on the team to a positive. So uh players like Neil and Chase on one of them will be in the lineup, but it could it's probably just gonna be one of them each game. I, I have a feeling. juju care is in tough to to get playing time. I would I would go with Haas over him at the start of the year. And if Haas can kill penalties, then that 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 battle is over. Knee Guard's gonna be in tough to get playing time. Um unless there's an injury and there's there's always an injury. So we'll we'll see what happens then. But the owners have they're they're They are five lines deep with NHL hockey players, Bruce. And when was the last time the owners were five lines deep with the NHL hockey players? Nineteen eighties, maybe? Did they have that kind of depth then? Um, This is this is a pretty. It was a different (sighs) league that you know was a little they you know. I think I can't remember who they like the the players they would have plugged it, like Norm Lacombe, I guess, like who was on the bench. Anyway, it was a long time ago if they ever had that kind of depth. They've got pretty good depth now. Let's finish off, Bruce, with a brief discussion of Yesapulia Yarvi. And Mark Spector let slip uh, or reported one of the most um, encouraging comments that I've heard about Yesapulia Yarvi in years. What? And he. Spectre was quoting something that Ken Holland had told him kind of off the record in the past, but was, was on the record. Now, what did, what did Ken Holland say to Spectre?
1: Oh, uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but uh, refresh me. Sorry.
0: Oh, sorry. Were you thinking about something else? Uh, Uh,
1: Well, I didn't have that specific comment in my head.
0: What he said was essentially what Colin said was, because you wrote on it, I was going to, you, I
1: did.
0: I was throwing that to you. But what he said was, uh, now I've got to think of it, was that what he hoped was to get a veteran center to play with right. play with Pulley for the whole year. Get this veteran center in there, someone who could teach yes of the game and kind of keep them together the whole year. And that was the plan for the year. Get him with a veteran center, third line center, teach him the game, and that that's what's going to work out, and lo and behold, the orders had that player in the past in Dylan Strom, and they traded him away for Ryan Spooner, and Ryan that is just a world of hurt. Let's not get into it, but they've signed Kyle Turris, who is a Dylan strom like player, I think. Ryan Veterans, yeah, Ryan Strom, Dylan Strom. I always mix them up. Ryan strom like player, and um, Kyle Turris is this veteran center who's had some real success in the past, and he he's not that old that you're worried. He's not, he's, what is he, 31, 30, 31? Yeah. So, so he's not 33, 34 like Eric Belanger was when he came. He's a little younger than that. Hopefully he can he can play in this role and be this guy for Jesse Pugliarvi. And and Spec was also complaining about Pugliarvi's lack of scoring in the Finnish league. Bruce, what I've seen is Pugliarvi could easily have four or five, six more points in the Finnish league. He, he's been getting, he's in on usually four or five grade A chances a game. Usually, there's been a couple games maybe where he hasn't, but um, six grade A chances sometimes he could easily have more points, is, is, is what I'm saying. Oh, yeah. So, just to rate him on points, I think, was was uh, a little bit iffy on Spectre's part. There, I mean, it'd be nice if he had more points, but I'm not worried about it.
1: 16 games worth of points at that,
0: yeah, it's I a mean, small it was, sample size,
1: it was about that many number of points that uh, of games. Uh, with a low sample size that uh, prompted uh Peter Chiarelli to trade Ryan Strome just to you know, go back to you know Pugliarby's previous mentor, yeah. Uh, that that's a trade that still sticks in my crop, and we'll just leave it there. But uh, that's exactly the player that um uh, that Ken Holland was describing. I I'm just saying he wants Puliarvi on a third line next to a veteran center, and um him on the bench, give him a steady presence, and I'd like him to, to play with the same guy uh, for most of the season. And that, to me, that is the recipe for yes, Puglia-Arvey, this idea that he's somehow just going to get airlifted in onto Connor McDavid's line, or worse, this interpretation of some people, any aspirational comment made by puglia or anybody talking about puglia that foresees him in such a role down the line is somehow... Uh, entitlement of a spoiled brat that doesn't know any better. Uh, th- that kind of stuff gets me going. Uh, his long-term future remains indeterminate. The short-term future, it sounds like Ken Holland has a very clear idea in mind, and I think it's a very logical and sensible way to uh, to approach this player, establish him on the team in a regular role in the NHL, and then take it from there.
0: Yeah, I, I, and that's what if watching him in Finland, I think he needs. Like, I don't think, I don't actually, watching him in Finland, I'm not thinking there's an easy fit here with McDavid. I think McDavid is hard to play with. And w- there's a better fit with Dreisaitl, I think. Um, but if Dreisaitl's got his heart set on Yamamoto, I don't know if that'll go over that well. So I'm just, I'm, you know, there's all these internal team politics, which we can only speculate on based on, you know, comments that we hear from insiders which we may or, which I may or may not be interpreting correctly but uh third line with RV, that's exactly the right fit like 40 games just sending them out there every shift and like second power play unit with tourists maybe second power play unit and killing penalties I think maybe. yes that RV should kill penalties in the NHL and uh would do a heck of a job because because one of the issues has been you get these you know, some games descend into power play PK time for the Oilers and a guy can miss, not be on the ice for 10, 15 minutes sitting there. I think that's really hurt puglia in the past. So get him out there on the PK. Great big guy, huge wingspan, a a good defensive hockey player, I I think. And um, give him that role with Turris. Have those guys out there and see what they can do in that role every single game. Um, And I think it'll work. I think there's a there's a good hockey player there.
1: Well, he sure skating well in the games that I've watched, and uh, he just kind of swoops around out there, eh? Like you're, reminds yeah. me of Wayne Swoop Carlton, of the <laughs> Boston yeah. Bruins, and, yeah. and that was that was a little bit of a, of a um, that nickname was kind of a double edged sword. But uh, uh, yes, is not a floater. Like swooping is actually a skill that uh, you know he. He just sort of bends, and he's going in a different direction, and he's all over that puck. And uh, he's, uh, you know, he's got some good good speed and, and uh, uh, this huge wingspan. And he's, you know, once once he gets to the point where he's consistently, keyword, mm-hmm. applying these uh, these natural gifts of his in the NHL. I mean, there there's a NHL plus talent there for sure
0: swoop carlton 22 goals in 69 games for the boston bruins in 70 71
1: which was a Mm -hmm.
0: pretty good team
1: that was was the year they had the 10 20 goal scores was it is that right they got 10 20 goal scores
0: then he must have got picked up by california golden seals in either in a trade or the expansion draft i'm not sure which and then he played in the WHA and, and the WHA, which was kind of like AHL caliber at that time. Uh, I think it's fair to say he was a he was a killer uh, goal scorer in the in the uh, yeah. That's a good comparison. They have a very similar, you know, at the upper end of that level, Frank Mahovlich, um, you know, that kind of swooping style of play. Um, Swoop Carlton being kind of maybe at the lower end for uh, for uh, someone in the, in that more category,
1: or the nickname that reminds uh, yeah. making in his case, but uh, that's that's a that's a word that describes uh, uh, yes Arvi's style to, to my mind.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that in the end that Puliyarvi will have that really super duper high end skill to mm-hmm. be a top line NHL player. Um, you know his his shooting is is looks looks good, but it's not great. Like it, it doesn't like he's not killer. Like you were watching some highlights of that new kid the others drafted, Cutter Savoy. You know with that mm-hmm. now, who knows if that will translate? But you know the killer shot. He's, he was said by some sec- second best shot in the draft, according to mm-hmm. I think it was Scott Wheeler, if I'm not mistaken, of the Athletic, and uh Alexander Holtz he had rated higher than that. Uh, <laughs> so. And I think I'm getting that right. Uh fact checked me on that. But you know, the, and the passing is 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 really good. It's it's certainly NHL quality passing, maybe top six, but I don't know if Poliarvey is gonna be a top line NHL player from watching him in Finland. But I still doesn't matter. I, there's an NHL player there, a good one. And um, can't wait to see him over here. And and right now Carpat is the whole Finnish league is out until boxing day. due to covid so um i wonder if he's going to come over sooner than later i i he may be coming over in a couple weeks just and he should come over here start playing with his teammates again i'm sure the older players will start to get together in december
1: they're already some of them together
0: yeah come come on over man if if that's allowed i don't know what the flight rules are now but um i think it's all i think he could come over they're bringing over. Just hop a ride with the Finnish uh, junior national junior team as they come over here for the U20 tournament. <laughs> That's probably not allowed. Yeah, though.
1: Well, well, dry settles here apparently among among others, yeah. nerds and so on. Some of these guys are working out together, and it wouldn't hurt, I think, Yessa, to hang out with those guys a little bit and sort to get in, you know, in the team. And I think that was part of his problem before. Uh, uh, so with the league. Being postponed the way it is, yeah, you, know, you bring up an interesting point that maybe that that hastens his uh, his departure point. I know the team, Carpat, is already preparing for his departure because they brought in some 35-year-old journeyman, put him stuck him in Jesse's role on the first line, uh, and so they are not expecting to have him much longer. And with you know games canceled for three plus weeks, I mean, initially CarPat was the team. Uh, Ulu Karpat that uh, canceled six home games in December, and I think that was the uh, sort of the the movement that made the whole league sort of reevaluate and say maybe we just better shut her all down for a while while we got through the worst of this crisis.
0: It's interesting because you know, when I don't know what the rules are in terms of um the players getting together right now inside to play hockey and Edmonton, like they're and it, like 10. I don't even know what the rules are, Bruce. Like, I have no idea what uh, what will govern that, if they can be in a cohort, um, like a work cohort. It's a little different because they're professionals. This is their job. And mm-hmm. and I, I think, but, I mean, like, socially, socially, he probably couldn't get together with them because right. we ain't allowed to do that in Alberta right now. So uh, that's the rules, and uh, let's stick to the rules as best we can. I mean, they can, you can get together on an outdoor rink, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think if there's less than 10. Um, But,
1: um, yeah. I passed a couple of outdoor rinks this week. There was at least 10 people out there that I saw. And I'll leave it right there. But there was at least 10. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I mean, outdoor transmission has, I think the science tells us that even when they had these huge protests in the States and huge rallies, outdoor things, that, that this, I don't get my, put it this way. On the top of the things that I worry about with COVID, that's way down my list because I think the science tells us that hasn't been a big issue. And maybe if you can again fact check me on that, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's what the science has told us. That you know, there's always whenever there's a rally, like one political group or the other, the other side's always attacking them, like you shouldn't do that. And then when then then they hold their own rally, well, this is really important that we hold our rally, and it's and it's relatively safe. So, uh, uh, but I do think that the science backs up those who will argue that uh, the outdoor stuff is relatively safe. So.
1: Awesome. Uh,
0: Yeah, it's all relative. And uh, let's leave it there, Bruce. Thanks for talking today.
1: All right. Thanks for listening, everyone.
0: And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. Let me just find the off button
1: here.